1: Terms and conditions apply.
0: When I was a little kid, my father used to tell this story about when he was a young lawyer in New Orleans. It was one of those stories that sound a bit different to you as a grown-up than as a child, but maybe all stories do. Anyway, in my father's telling, he'd just started at a law firm. And that firm had been hired by a big railroad company. The railroad was defending itself against one of its own employees. This poor worker had lost his arms in an accident, for which the railroad was clearly responsible. My father's job was to minimize the amount of money that the railroad had to pay to the employee. My dad went hunting for a creative defense. I don't know
2: where I got the idea, but the idea was that that, uh, handicapped people uh, can still work.
0: That's my dad, Tom Lewis. His hunt for a creative defense led him to Nashville, Tennessee, where he found, well, he actually found an expert who trained people with no arms to do lots of amazing things. This expert promised to show any jury that it wasn't a big deal at all to lose your arms. You could still do so much. My father was so impressed that he flew the guy to New Orleans and put him on a witness stand as an expert witness.
2: And he said, oh, yes, he said, and then he started to give me examples. This is on the stand. For example, says he, I uh, dealt with a man who had lost the use of his arms or hands, and we taught him to type with his toes.
0: When I was a kid, my father used to really ham it up. He'd roll back in his chair and raise his feet high in the air because this expert, was apparently truly enthusiastic about his expertise. My dad would lift his feet high over some imagined giant typewriter to show how ridiculously easy it was to type with your toes. The problem was, it didn't really look easy.
2: And um, it was... Apparent, even to me, in my naive state at that time, that 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 was not going over well with the jury, and the uh, railroad got clobbered.
0: To my kid brain, this story had a couple of takeaways, apart from the obvious one that my father wasn't cut out to help a railroad screw over a man who'd gotten hurt on the job. My biggest takeaway was how well our system of justice worked. The railroad was forced to fork over a huge pile of money, and the expert had helped the jury to see the truth, which is what experts are supposed to do, right? I'm Michael Lewis, and this is Against the Rules, my show about unfairness in American life. This season is all about experts— And today's show is all about a special kind of expert, maybe the most official kind, the expert witness. A decade ago, some law professors set out collecting data on all wrongful convictions in the United States. The National Registry of Exonerations, they called their project. They only collected data going back to 1989. That was the first year that DNA analysis could offer definitive proof of a wrongful conviction. They've now counted more than 3,000 wrongful convictions. 3,000 people sent to prison when they should not have been. Almost 27,000 years spent behind bars, all by people who should never have been there in the first place. And that's obviously just the tiniest sliver of the problem. These were the people who were able to find people to help them. Even with this small sample, the law professors could see some patterns. The reasons why justice often miscarries in America. There were two big ones. The first reason isn't all that surprising the behavior of the police.
3: They are intimidating and threatening suspects. Um, They're intimidating and threatening witnesses. Simon Cole, a professor of criminology, law, and society at UC Irvine, now runs the Exonerations Project. They're getting people to lie. They're hiding evidence. Just a whole litany of kind of behaviors like that. The
0: second reason for all the wrongful convictions was a bit less obvious the expert witnesses who take the stand in trials and help the prosecution. In about a quarter of the wrongful convictions, the experts were at least partly responsible.
3: The classic one is microscopic hair comparison, where it's kind of well understood now that you could say a person might be the source of a hair, but no one in the microscopic hair comparison discipline would ever say now that a hair must come from one person, from you, Michael Lewis, and not from any other person. But at the trial, they say something like, the defendant's the source of the hair. So they've greatly overstated the value of the evidence and what the evidence can do.
0: People have been convicted and sentenced to life in prison, or even death, on the word of hair experts bite mark experts, ballistic experts. Experts used to take the stand to claim with certainty that a fire was arson. Then actual science proved that the fire experts were almost always wrong. A bunch of people were convicted for setting fires that were not, in fact, set by anyone. It's not that the expert witnesses know nothing. It's that they don't know nearly as much as they claim.
3: The FBI pulled a bunch of its transcripts from its own experts um, and said, we're going to go through these transcripts and see if they testified erroneously. Again, it, it doesn't mean they made an error in the hair analysis. It doesn't mean the guy was innocent. It doesn't mean the hair wasn't from the guy. But did they overstate the testimony? Right. Yes, they did. In 96% of cases, <laughs> right? Every, all the time. And
0: this is the FBI. FBI. If their experts are screwing up in this way, it's hard to imagine that most other experts aren't as well. It seems to be like across the board in these expertises that it's just a systematic overstatement of one's level of certainty.
3: And I'll tell you why I think that is, right? I think the lawyers try to make you do it. That's their job, to get the expert to go as far as they can get them to go. I mean, they want the expert to to say they're certain.
0: Back in 1988, the state of California passed a new law. More than 30 other states would go on to copy it. The new law allowed prosecutors to demand extra prison time for anyone convicted of a crime committed on behalf of a gang. If you robbed a gas station, you might get seven years in jail, unless you did it for a gang, in which case you might get 20 years. These so-called gang enhancements affect roughly 12,000 inmates just in California right now. 92% of these people serving extra time are Black or Latino. An amazing statistic. So for the past 30 years, American juries have had to decide not just whether a defendant is guilty or not guilty. They also have to decide gang member or not gang member. Did he rob the gas station for the gang? Or just to pay for his drug habit? When he committed his crime, what exactly was going on inside his head? To figure it all out, courts have relied on a new kind of expert, the gang expert. For 30 years, that expert has almost always been a police officer, almost always a male police officer. And this officer almost always testifies that he's sure that whatever crime was committed was for the benefit of a gang. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. But I'd have thought it's at least possible to find someone out there with a clearer sense of the motives of the kids who wind up in gangs. Someone who's actually had the experience. Okay, okay. On. so, so we're, gonna, we're gonna get out of the car. LJ's gonna take her phone. All right. We're going that way, right? We're headed towards the overpass? It's actually not all that hard to find someone like that. Someone who's actually had the experience. My producers did it in less than a day. So whose territory are we in now? You're still in Shelltown. Adam Mortera is a former gang member of San Diego's Shelltown, the 38th Street
4: branch. There are two branches of Shelltown. So you have Shelltown, which is the neighborhood. Yep. And then you have the two branches, this 38th Street and Gamma Street. So right. you're gonna see the gang graffiti, you're gonna see a lot of the 38s, and then you're gonna see the GBS, which is Gamma Boys, And then Gamma Street. So you see on the floor where you're walking? Yeah, yeah.
0: Adam lives in L.A. now, but he's giving me a tour of his old neighborhood over FaceTime. I'm walking through a part of San Diego that some urban planner had once clearly hoped would be a park. But instead, it's become a place people avoid at night. It's nestled beside a freeway overpass, and so there are lots of concrete surfaces. And just about every inch of them is covered in graffiti. To me, it's just an incoherent mass of shapes and letters. To Adam, it's a language.
4: You see the GBS right there? Uh is that it In right the there? Red. GBS? Yeah, right there. It's GBS, Gamma Boys. That's the Gamma Boys, alright. Yes. So if you keep walking, and I'm, you're probably gonna see Youngster's name right there. Because I'm pretty sure I saw it when I was there. Oh yeah, that was that Youngster?
0: Youngster. That's the name of someone with a talent for spray painting who Adam's taken an interest in. Why, I'll explain in a minute. For now, I just want you to listen to a guy who knows a lot, teaching me a guy who knows nothing. And what's the X over the N? Did someone try to X it
4: out? They put an X over the N because one of the rivals of Town is National City. So Uh, the N, they put an X on it as a form of disrespect.
0: God, there's so much meaning in this thing.
4: And why is there an
0: X on the bottom of the Y?
4: That part? I don't know.
0: I was walking down under the freeway into what amounted to the museum's main gallery. Adam was taking a trip down memory lane to a time when it was his name on these paintings. Perico, he signed himself. Little Parrot, because his older brother was the Big Parrot.
4: So I started off with writing gang graffiti on the walls, getting into some fist fights. Up until about the age of 14, Adam would have defined
0: the word gang as just the people he hung out with. He'd adored his dad, but his dad had vanished when he was five. Shelltown was shockingly dangerous. To keep safe, Adam stuck close to his older brother and his friends. Without them, he was likely to be robbed or beaten, or worse.
4: I was shot at a few times, and then when I got shot at, I realized this is very serious and I need a weapon that is more in line with what's going on in my life. And because of the violence became so intense, I started carrying a weapon which was a, a, a pistol, a gun.
0: But his main activity for years was this graffiti. That was how you showed your devotion to the gang when you were a little kid, by painting the gang symbols all over the place. On days he was feeling reckless, Adam would sneak into the territory of rival gangs and paint on their walls. So tell me what you did that got you in trouble with the law.
4: Okay. Initially, I got arrested for possession of marijuana at 14, vandalism, writing on the walls, gang graffiti, assault with a firearm on three people. And ultimately, I committed a gang-related murder when I was 17 years old.
0: Was it against a rival gang member?
4: Yes, it was against a rival gang member. So some gang members, including my older brother, were in front of my house one evening, drinking, talking, shooting dice, typical hanging out. And a rival gang came and shot at them and hit a few people. My grandmother was home. My brother's wife, his child, his newborn daughter was home. So me and my rage... I went looking for those rival gang members, and I found one of them, and I am responsible for taking his life.
0: Adam pled guilty to murder back in 1991. His sentencing was complicated because he was still a minor. He remembers the system trying to figure out if there was any hope for him.
4: And one of the psychological evaluations, the psychologist asked me, like, if you could do anything, if you could have any impact on the world, what would it be? And I remember telling him I would help address the ozone layer, because at the time, that was a big problem in 1991. And it really, really threw him off because he was expecting something completely different. And he told me, like, you know what, you're, you're really different. You're, you are the average gang member, but at the same time, you're not.
0: Adam was still only 17 years old. His lawyers argued that he should be released at the age of 25 and given another chance. But he was tried as an adult, and the fact that he'd been in a gang probably didn't help his case. He wound up being sentenced to life in prison. Behind bars, he remained affiliated with his old gang, but more and more as an anthropologist of gang life than as a member. He learned everything he could about gang culture, gang sociology, gang law. He was a model prisoner. And in 2013, after 22 years, Adam was released. He knew exactly what he wanted to do with the rest of his life. He wanted to work with kids in gangs to help them avoid what had happened to him. He founded a nonprofit called the Juvenile Justice Advocates of California to work with kids who were already in trouble. He became known to social workers, and they'd ask him to speak to various groups about his experience. After one of these speeches, a member of the audience came up to him. She said she was a public defender. She wanted to tell him about a case she'd just been given. A 23-year-old San Diego man had been arrested for vandalism. By sheer coincidence, he was in the same gang that Adam had been in. Graffiti was usually a misdemeanor, but this guy had allegedly painted so many walls and buildings that he was being charged with a felony. And that meant the possibility of a gang enhancement to his sentence. The guy's given name was Alejandro Loza. His street name was Youngster they had
4: pictures of him and she was like, did one person do all this gang graffiti? And why would you know anything about
0: that? Like, that's sounds like something that like a, I don't know, an art connoisseur would determine. Like this hand is different from this hand. How would you, How would you know any more than anyone else how much of the graffiti he did?
4: Me personally, I would know because I was, I did gang graffiti. So I recognize different lettering styles, different artists. Youngster's defense
0: attorney wanted Adam to testify at trial as an expert witness. She could see that Adam knew as much about San Diego's gang graffiti as a person could know. But Adam hadn't the faintest idea of himself as an official expert. How to sound like an expert, how to persuade others that he's an expert. It surprised him that he'd be invited into a courtroom, except as a defendant. Like, what even were the rules about who got to take the stand? Adam would learn all that, and we will too. After a break. As listeners of this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert teams of nerds have the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply.
5: Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization. Washington State's city of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The City of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the City of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobilecom mobilecom unconventional unconventionalawards. That's tmobilecom mobilecom unconventional unconventionalawards. See you there.
6: There are kind of two distinct phases in kind of modern American legal history.
0: Emily Shulman is an expert on expert witnesses. She also lectures at Harvard Law School. She's here for a very brief lesson on what qualifies as expertise in the court.
6: For a surprisingly long time, there was one case, that Supreme Court case, that governed evidence law. And uh, that was called the Fry case, and so it was experts had to satisfy the Fry test. What was the Fry test? You know, boiled down to its essence, it really just said that expert witnesses could testify if what they were testifying to, sort of their expertise, was generally accepted in the scientific community.
0: So it's, it's related to science right from the beginning.
6: That was it. That was the the yardstick.
0: So I can't be an expert on horoscopes?
6: Um, not on horoscopes, no.
0: Not on horoscopes, but you could claim a scientific basis for all sorts of other stuff. Bite marks, arson. All you needed was a cluster of people in your field to agree that what you were doing was science. Handwriting
6: analysis, for example. Little cottage industries develop and you know, one handwriting expert says, yeah, there there is such a thing as handwriting expertise. And the other says, yeah, I agree with you. And, you know, the next thing you know, you have a little, you know, handwriting expert kind of community that is doing pretty well for itself. And there you have it.
0: Under the cover of science, a lot of dubious experts got paid to serve as witnesses. And in criminal cases, these experts overwhelmingly serve the prosecution. That changed in 1993 when a mess of a case based on pseudoscience got appealed all the way to the Supreme Court.
6: Ultimately, the Supreme Court said, yeah, we're no longer going to just kind of roll over in the face of scientific consensus. Like, we have our own standards to uphold. And the kind of new view was that experts could testify if their testimony was going to be helpful to a jury, and they were offering scientific or technical or some other kind of specialized knowledge to the jury. So now the
0: trial judge decides who can be an expert. This, of course, just substitutes one problem for another. It's still a highly subjective process, but a telling process— Because the courtroom is the one place in American life that tries to be super precise about experts. An expert who lies on the stand can, in theory, go to jail. And yet, even now, the justice system has trouble figuring out some very basic things about experts.
7: Okay, everyone, welcome to uh, the first substantive part of the Independent Forensic Gang Expert College at Loyola Law School.
0: Sean Kennedy is a former public defender, now an associate professor of law at Loyola Law School in Los Angeles.
7: This is going to be uh, Expert Witness 101, and uh, I'm going to tell you how and why I believe every single one of you is ready right now, today, to qualify as a forensic gang expert in uh, state and federal courts in California.
0: Sean's in a Zoom box. And in a dozen other Zoom boxes, a dozen former gang members watch Sean talk. He starts by explaining the problem, which they all more than understand. The cops who serve as gang experts often don't know much and never know as much as they claim to know. Peak absurdity came back in 2016 in a case involving a man named Sanchez and led to what got called the Sanchez Problem.
7: And the Sanchez problem is a police gang expert case where the cop went up there and testified, "Ah, everything in this trial is all about the defendant did everything because it was for the benefit of the street gang. But the cop had no interaction with the case. He uh, didn't know the defendant. He didn't do any investigation, didn't do any preparation for his testimony. He just got up there and repeated what was on the police report and said, I'm an expert.
0: After Sanchez, the California Supreme Court ruled that anyone who wanted to be a gang expert had to know something about the case, about the defendant, or at least about gangs. Hence, Sean Kennedy's training class.
7: So we need some new experts. You are those experts. Sean's held a bunch of these classes.
0: This one's online and the students are all women. Sean lays out the stakes. And then leads them into the meat of the course, a role-playing game.
7: So, let's try it. Do I have anyone of uh, our experts, budding experts, who wants to uh, qualify the way it would be done in court? Just, just raise your hand. Qualify.
0: Submit your credentials as an expert. There aren't any hands.
7: I'm seeing some smiles. <laughs> Jessica, you ready?
4: Let's give it a shot.
7: (laughs) All right, so you're on the stand. You uh, uh, have been called. You have uh, stated your name, and you've been sworn in. And so I'm going to qualify you as an expert, okay? Could you tell us about your education?
4: Uh, My education was I uh, received a G.D. and I'm currently a college student, and I was, I grew up in a gang infested neighborhood.
7: Do you have any personal experience with gang involvement?
4: Yes, I do. Tell I, us about um, I um, <clears throat> joined a, a gang and at 17 I was arrested.
7: What gang? What gang?
4: Um, I'm sorry. Um, do do we have to say this? (laughs) I'm sorry.
7: Uh, We're in court. That's the question.
0: Sean's just being a lawyer, but their response is the opposite of the guy who taught people to type with their toes. They're not full of conviction or enthusiasm. And that makes sense. To testify is to violate the basic codes of the street.
7: How did it feel, Jessica?
4: Um... I'm not comfortable with, you know, speaking to anybody who's in, in a position to to ask me a question like that. It's very uncomfortable. Um I felt like I sensed you as as an attorney. And I don't mean no disrespect to you, shot, but no from a, a white male in a suit, <sighs> it just feels like it's coming from the top. Yeah. <laughs> or or somebody in in a, in a um, authority figure.
7: Yes, um, no disrespect taken. But when you were there, you were feeling the heat. And I'm your lawyer, I'm your friend. And I, we're just talking about uh, you know your qualifications. We haven't even got into the substance of the matter. And you're feeling the heat. What's it gonna feel like when the DA stands up and tries to make fun of you on cross-examination? It's not rhetorical.
0: Sean's just getting a lot of blank stares here.
6: I want you to understand this,
4: Professor Kennedy. It's just that this is the first time that we're on this side. A lot of times, everything that a person has ever said in their life, especially being Black or Latino, have always been used as a weapon against us. So I don't want you, when you hear Dominique or you hear Jessica and they're kind of hesitant, it's not that they don't trust you because they wouldn't even be in this process if they didn't trust us in the process, but it's just, you know, working through these things, working through these things, learning how to articulate these things.
0: The Sanchez problem was about cops with no knowledge saying that they knew. This class is just the reverse people who actually know a lot and can't get it across because it's not just who knows it's who's willing to say that they know. And it's not easy to say that, you know, when for your whole life you've been told not to say anything plus no one in power ever really thought you were worth asking.
7: Can you please tell the court now what that experience is?
4: My experience is I'm an inactive, um, gang member. Um, I was involved with uh the um God. oh man, the it's kinda you get a little nervous. I'm sorry. Um
7: Don't break don't break character, we're in court. Just I'm sorry. Okay. How'd it feel?
4: Oh my gosh, I feel I mean, like,
7: I on I feel like I'm on trial. feel like on trial. You are on trial. You are on trial, right? You're an expert. Okay.
4: Is there a way we can do more um, mock hearings like this? Because it was a little intimidating. Yeah, um, and I don't want to. I don't want to feel like that. Like I want to be able to articulate myself in a professional manner. I want to be able to address that in a way to where it sounds like I'm. I'm. I'm educated.
0: Where it sounds like I'm educated. She's not worried about what she knows. She's worried about. How she seems to others.
3: I thought coming in, I mean, just me, I thought coming in, they would know that they were experts.
0: Marissa Harris works with Sean Kennedy at Loyola's Gang Expert College.
3: It took about a full class until we got to the end of the first class for them to start typing in the chat box on Zoom or raising their hands to say, you know what, I could do this. I'm definitely an expert. I know everything you're talking about. I remember all of this. The people who have the lived experience should be the experts. They are the experts. Just their, you know, existence makes them experts. And so all they really need is some legal tools and and some, you know, polishing. And and they're the ones who should be in those chairs.
0: It's all new, this training. People talk about structural racism. Here's a byproduct, structural expertiseism. It'll take months before any of these students get to a witness stand as an expert. But before this kind of training even existed, a few people were taking the stand anyway. And one of them was Adam Mortero. Against the Rules, we'll be right back. As listeners of this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert teams of nerds have the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms
5: apply. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency, Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices, anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com/unconventional awards that's t-mobile.com/unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat.
0: Let's go back to 2018. A public defender had asked Adam Mortera to testify as a gang expert in the trial of Alejandro Loza, a.k.a. Youngster. Adam really studied Youngster's work and his case file. The guy was not exactly a model citizen. He'd beaten someone up. He'd been arrested before. He had a drug problem. But his graffiti? To Adam's eye, the graffiti was really good. The tag that Youngster used, though, looked pretty common. Adam kept pointing it out to me on our FaceTime tour.
4: There it is right there. There's, See, now there's a version of Youngster. You see the difference? There's a 38 under that name, yeah, yep. so it's not the same Youngster because it's a different branch. Right. Youngster was from Gamma. Right. This guy is Youngs, and he's from 38.
0: The police had caught Alejandro Loza tagging, Red handed, but they'd accused him of a lot more than they'd caught him doing. And when Adam compared the graffiti Youngster was known to have done with the graffiti he was just suspected of having done, he noticed some differences.
4: I mean, there was just a bunch of different ways of the name Young or Youngster or Youngs. And what I was, what I believed was that it was really more than one Youngster or Youngs, that there was maybe two. And one was older and one was younger. If I came here with a cop and said, "Explain all this to me," how well do you think they'd do? They do pretty well. You think they do pretty well? They don't. They're not always a hundred percent honest. They they can decipher this stuff. They and could. Doing, right. Yeah, they could because it's pretty it's pretty basic. Like nothing that I just showed you is complex at all. No, you're right. But it, but
0: it it means making some distinctions that. Um, That people don't normally make yes and it means actually it means actually looking at it it's funny because this is sort of background noise in 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 american life that this this stuff is everywhere and i just i'm kind of blind to it unless it's something that's just strikingly beautiful i just think oh someone someone defaced that highway but that's not what that person is thinking that person is thinking i i've actually communicated something pretty specific here and, and, and some of it's gang related and some of it's not. Some of it is by who it says it's by and some of it's by some imitator.
4: You, you can really see that and you can tell some of the distinctions because you're in, actually interested. Now law enforcement, they see exactly what you see. They see the distinctions, but they don't say, it's possible that it's more than one person. We're not gonna say that. Let's just say it's this one person so we can give them the felony.
0: There was a bunch of graffiti signed Youngs or Youngster, but the script was different. And the changing names, that was also weird. Adam knew that graffiti artists seldom changed their signatures. They wanted people to know exactly who had painted it. He also knew that the best gang graffiti artists always spawned imitators. And one way to acknowledge the master was to adopt a similar name. There was also a more subtle question of Youngster's motives. Which prosecutors didn't even care to ask. Why had Alejandro Loza painted at all? It was gang graffiti. Even his defense lawyer admitted that much. But to Adam, graffiti wasn't just graffiti. Let's go down here so you can so I'll show you because I have a question about your own tagging. Did you think of it as art or did you think of it as something else?
4: I thought of it as art.
0: The world saw youngsters work as gang graffiti and That was that. But Youngster's art career was more interesting. He had a side hustle, drawing people's portraits. He claimed he had no imagination, but he could capture perfectly in paint anything you put in front of him, right down to the last strand of hair. He reminded Adam just a little bit of his younger self.
4: Okay. Initially...
0: Obviously, I was nervous. And you'd only been there once before, and that was when they put you in jail. Adam had never really thought of himself as an expert on anything except, perhaps, on injustice, which had been woven into his existence since he was a little kid.
4: I was 14 years old when I first got arrested, and I, was, I wasn't i was treated like a child. I was treated like a criminal, and I had $5 worth of marijuana. I was treated like, I mean, I was handcuffed, I was put in a police car, I was taken to jail, I was booked, and my parents had to pick me up, or my grandmother. You think about going to the courtroom, that's your memory. Yeah, so my memory is is that courts have always been punitive. They've never been about any type of rehabilitation or justice or getting to the truth. It's always been punitive.
0: But now he had to go to court to testify as an expert
4: witness. I have no idea what to expect, honestly. What do you decide to wear? I wore slacks and I wore a collared short-sleeved shirt, which I do not recommend doing and I will not do again. <laughs> Why is that? Because it's, it's appropriate to wear a suit and tie in the courtroom. Right. And I realize that now, and that's how I dress now. But at the time, I just wore slacks and a collared shirt.
0: He's wearing the wrong clothes. He's nervous and they aren't taking him seriously. You can see this in the court transcripts. When the judge tells the prosecutor that he's going to allow Adam to testify, the prosecutor replies, he's going to admit to being a murderer, and I'm not sure anything gets more prejudicial than that.
4: He was asking me if I was if I got paid to be there. And initially I was like, what, is, how is that relevant? And I know what he's doing, but I felt uncomfortable talking about getting paid to be there. Like if I was doing someone a favor because they gave me money and I was not there to provide a service. And what would you say now? Now I would say I'm here as a professional as well as everyone else in this courtroom. So I'm I'm assuming everyone here is getting paid today.
0: Adam understands that now. Hell, the prosecutor got paid. But at Youngster's trial, Adam didn't think to point any of that out, and it put him back on his heels. The money he'd been paid just hung in the air as an accusation. When you read the transcript from the trial, you're struck by a couple of other things. One is Adam's reticence. He doesn't insist on his expertise. He's just offering an opinion, the opinion of a convicted murderer who is being paid. The other thing is the confidence of the cop, who testifies for the prosecution. The cop is totally sure that Youngster has painted everything he's accused of painting.
4: No, I didn't think that they were going to let him go.
0: Even though you thought he was innocent, of all, not of all of it, but of some of it.
4: What mattered was the prosecution was going hard to get maximum conviction for maximum sentencing. And I knew that what was happening, and that's exactly what happened.
0: In the end, the jury convicted Alejandro Loza. Youngster the prosecution called for a gang-enhanced sentence. And the judge sent him to prison for six years, for graffiti, some of which was quite likely applied by copycats.
4: The criminal justice system is designed that poor people and minorities, mainly blacks and Latinos, go through the system and end up in prison or jail. Justice is not the case. No one's interested in justice, sadly.
0: So here's a theory. The greater the inequality in any society, the more perverse the use of experts will be. Because actual knowledge, actual expertise, threatens those on the happy end of the inequality. The truth can be a weapon for anyone, so you can't just let anyone have it. Against the Rules is written and hosted by me, Michael Lewis, and produced by Catherine Girardot and Lydia Jean Cott. Julia Barton is our editor, with additional editing by Audrey Dilling. Beth Johnson is our fact-checker, and Mia Lobel executive produces. Our music is created by John Evans and Matthias Bossi of Stellwagen Stimphonet. We record our show at Berkeley Advanced Media Studios, expertly helmed by Topher Ruth. Thanks also to Jacob Weisberg, Heather Fain, John Schnars, Carly Migliori, Christina Sullivan, Eric Sandler, Maggie Taylor, Morgan Ratner, Nicole Morano, Royston Beserve, Daniela Lacan, Mary Beth Smith, Jason Gambrell, and a special thanks to Jason Ruskowski and Julia Cott. Against the Rules is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you love this show and others from Pushkin Industries, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast Subscriptions. Keep in touch. Sign up for Pushkin's newsletter at pushkin.fm or follow at Pushkin Pods. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10x points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter.
5: The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress.